So tonight I'd like to talk about compassion and opening the heart. And I think it's important to talk about compassion because in some ways it's another way to describe the fulfillment of the teachings, the fulfillment of the path. Because that liberation or that realization, we might say, is expressed as the compassionate heart. And interestingly enough, over the years that I've been teaching and working with people, sometimes when I ask people, what have you seen that's changed in your life from the practice, from from the path? And so many people say, in a very simple way, I'm kinder to myself. Just simply, I'm kinder to myself and to those people around me. I'm, I'm kinder to myself and others. And sometimes I, I feel a little surprised because I expect something that maybe is going to sound more profound. But yet, in some ways, it is truly profound in itself because that's what really changes as the heart starts to open and we start to realize these teachings, we become kinder. And that kindness is directed to ourselves and directed outwardly. What are we saying that actually happens when we become kinder? I mean, really what happens is that we are not buying into as much those reactive patterns of our mind, those forces I was talking about and Catherine's been talking about, the forces of greed and hatred and delusion that are operating in the mind. We're not buying into that quite as much. And so that reactivity or that grasping tendency of mind starts to soften, starts to lose some of its power. And as that happens, What's there instead is more kindness. We're not really caught up as much in our ideas of what's right and what's wrong, how we should be and how others should be. And that the the ego structure, that the way that we are configured in that ignorance or that blindness or that inability to see ourselves clearly, that starts to loosen. That structure starts to loosen. And what's loosening is the tendency towards reactivity, towards grasping, towards clinging. Last couple weeks ago, I was in the plains of Canada, central Canada, and there's a sangha that I'm working with there, I've been working with over some years now. And one yogi uh, told me a story in, in the interview, and I asked her if I was able to share it because I, I thought, ah, a 21st century Dharma story. And really like, this is 21st century. And so what happened was, that she was, is about her third day on a seven-day silent retreat, just like this. She hadn't done this 
form of practice, you've done other forms of practice, but you hadn't been in a silent retreat situation before. And so by the third day, she was really, she had it. It's like it was too much. And the, just the, just the being with herself in the silence and all that was coming up, she just really wanted to go. She had her car and she drove, even though it was probably about um, 600 miles to get home in the plains, Canada, <laughs> she was still going to go. And she couldn't understand why she should stay. So she had been uh, inspired by one of her friends to come to the retreat. And so she thought, well, before she just takes off, she will contact her friend, and she had her cell phone with her. So she thought, well, she'll call her friend and ask her why she should stay on this retreat. But then she thought, well, I shouldn't really call her. You know, I put her on the spot. You know, what's she going to say? Maybe I'll just send her an email. So she had uh, text messaging on her cell phone where you can actually type in an email and then just push a button and send the email to a friend. I didn't even know that she could do this until she told me. I thought, wow, we're really getting sophisticated now. You know, I was concerned about cell phones, but now there's text messaging. So she said that um, the problem is that you can only use 160 characters to put this little message in the display. She said, what am I going to say? That's really going to get the point across. So <laughs> what she typed in was, hi, I'm on retreat and don't know why. Why should I stay? 160 characters. So then she was about to send the email to her friend and then she thought, oh, wait a minute. That's really putting my friend on the spot because she can only respond in 160 characters. And what is she actually going to say? So she thought, oh, well, you know, I'll just save it. And you can save these little emails. And she said, I'll just save it and then I'll just sense into what I want to do. So she pushes the save button. And she looks in there, she says, uh, she notices there's another email in there that she had saved. And she goes, well, I don't remember saving an email. She got very curious and she wanted to know what was in there. So she went into her database on her cell phone and retrieved the saved message. And this is what it said. Do not be sure of any perception you have. <laughs> Do not be sure of any perception you have. 160 characters. And she had put that in there herself about six months before as a, a quote, Dharma quote, something to remind her about, you know, inspiration when she needed it, but she completely forgot it was in there. And she thinks it might have been from Thich Nhat Hanh or something. And there it was. And she looked at it, and she went into a shock. Do not believe any perception that you have. And she just kept staring at it and staring at it and staring at it. And she just then she went and lied down her bed. She was like in so much shock she couldn't move. <laughs> and then she just let it in. She just let it in. She said, yeah, right. I can't believe any perception that I have. I can't believe this reaction that's happening right now. I can't believe what my mind is telling me. 
I can't believe this need that I have to go and I don't have the tolerance to stay with my difficulty right now. And she said she just lay there. She said she lay there for an hour. She was in so much shock. <laughs> but she had, this had actually happened. And then, and then she was able to let go, let go of the reactivity, and then settled down and stayed and actually had a really wonderful retreat. Oh, that was great. What a great story. Even the text messaging. <laughs> so that's so in a way it's like sometimes we're not able to uh, let go of the reactivity. You know, we're really in it and it's something's, you know, really moving through us. But something happens, you know, something kind of wakes us up, reminds us, all right. You know, I don't have to buy into it. I don't have to follow it. Maybe, who knows what it is. It might be some situation, you know, that's totally unexpected like that. might be a friend or, or something happens or might be even a, a reminder in our own mind. Something says, oh yeah, you don't have to follow that. And there's a gap, like a gap that stops. And Sokni Rinpoche on the retreat a few last month was talking about this gap. And he says it's like having a remote control, you know, remote control for the video. You know, another 21st century, 20th Remote control for the video, and you actually push the stop button on the video, stop the movie. You have the remote control. And the movie stops. There's a gap. And we're not in the movie. We're not following the movie. Something shifts. Something stops. And that gap, he says, that gap is like an open door to our naked original mind. Like an open door to our original mind. Because we're not caught in that moment in the story, we're not caught in the reactivity, in the grasping, something stopped. And he says when, when that gap is exposed, that stopping, he says that then the innate qualities of the awakened state can shine through naturally. Like that gap, that gap in the thinking, that gap in the reactivity, that gap that mindfulness brings to us when we just stop and the concepts drop away, and there's a possibility for something to shine through in that moment, something different. Not the ego structure, the conceptual structure, something else comes through that gap. Something that we may not even know what to call it or how to name it. And if we pick up that remote control enough times and we push the stop button, then over time we can say that this is how the mind becomes purified. The purification, because we're not <coughs> following, we're not strengthening, we're not feeding those negative, destructive patterns of mind. Something's interfering. And then something else can come through. And then our choices and our actions 
are informed by something besides ignorance, something besides the ego. Our choices and our actions are informed by wisdom, the wisdom that is exposed through that gap, naked, ordinary mind. And that wisdom is expressed as beautiful qualities of the heart. The beautiful qualities of our heart. We know that. We've experienced that. There's an archetype in the Buddhist tradition that symbolizes this radiant, awakened state. And this is Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And Bodhisattva, Bodhi means awake, Sattva means being or courageous being. So a Bodhisattva is a courageous being, one who has dedicated their life to become a Buddha, a Bodhisattva. And this Bodhisattva can be a celestial being or can be a goddess. And Kuan Yin is a feminine goddess, feminine archetype archetype of compassion, that expression of the the radiant heart, the, the radiant mind. And one of the manifestations of Kuan Yin is also, is also Avalokiteshvara, which is the male archetype. But same thing, different aspects, male, female, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara. And one picture, one symbol of Avalokiteshvara is, is, is he has a thousand arms. Maybe you've seen this tanka with a thousand arms all going all the way up around like an aura. And these thousand arms have eyes on all the hands. So arms and eyes. And what that symbolizes is the compassion that touches and sees the world. Touching and seeing the world. And sometimes that Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin is said to be she who hears the cries of the world. She who hears the cries of the world. And so it's a very engaged symbol. It's not one that is detached or pulled away or withdrawn into some kind of altered state that is disconnected, uh, very personal, but one that is open, in touch, connected to all the suffering in the world, all the joys of the world, the whole world as it is, not pulled back. And, this, and it's asking us, it's Kuan Yin and Avalokiteshvara are asking us to pay attention, stay awake. It's a very awake eyes, a thousand eyes, a thousand arms. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. And when the heart is open and we're not caught in our fears, which is ego, fear, and ego are often the same thing. 
when the fear starts to loosen, the reactivity starts to loosen, the reactivity and fear, the heart opens. And then we can engage with the world in a, in, in a, in a more and more and more of a capacity to engage. And I know for myself when I think of Kuan Yin or I uh, hear these teachings, I, I can feel my heart, I can feel a longing in my heart for that immense capacity to be that open and engaged. That longing. Like I want that. I want that in myself. And that longing, that longing, uh, one of my teachers, Karen Johnson, she says that longing is the heart's homesickness. It is true nature speaking to us through the longing. Like the, the true nature saying, yes, you can have it. It's you. And if we follow it, Karen says, if we follow it, we will find ourselves at a fountain. This fountain, this fountain is your true nature. If we follow it, we'll find ourselves at a fountain. And sometimes we're concerned about that longing, you know, well, you know, longing is just desire. I'm not supposed to have desire. That's a, you know, uh, the interference, it's a block. I should cut desire, you know. Sometimes Buddhist language can get confused that way. But this longing is a different kind of longing. It's a longing that's pulling us, that's guiding us home, home to the heart, home to our true nature, home to the immensity of our capacity as human beings in the world. I can think of how many times I have judged myself because I wasn't Kuan Yin, because I wasn't able to be compassionate. How many times I've really given myself a hard time because I'm not already there. I'm not already the Avalokiteshwar with a thousand arms and eyes. And yet there's now the understanding that that judgment isn't very compassionate. And if I want to really develop compassion, then the compassion has to be turned this way. The compassion has to be turned towards my own heart, my own being, my own human condition. And then when the compassion is turned this way, towards my own mind and my own body, then the compassion has an environment to grow, to become stronger and steadier so that then it can reach out to others, to the world. So compassion, compassion, what is it? What is compassion? I think that there's some root in the word compassion, with passion. And it, it, and it points to suffering with, the passion of suffering with compassion. And it's the love, the love that moves through us that is turned towards the pain, turned towards the suffering. It's the, the capacity to be able to open to suffering. 
And depending on how much there is of me there will determine how much I'm able to open towards the suffering. Because the me, that me, can fill that space of love, but the me that is filled with the the greed and the hatred and the confusion, the uncertainty, can interfere with the love. And so really, I think sometimes the reason compassion is difficult to feel is because there's so much of me there. And I actually need to start loosening this structure of me in order for that compassion to begin to come through. Otherwise, it gets, you know, me is so solidified that there isn't really many gaps sometimes for that love, that compassion to come through. And when I'm in the place of ego, of self, the, the, the expression of ego is, what's in it for me? Catherine's been talking about, what's in it for me? So if I open to this person, what's in it for me? If I'm able to be, um, if I'm able to care for that person, or um, if I can be kind, what's in it for me? And sometimes it's hard to just be in a place of that pure expression of care where I'm not interested in what I'm going to get back from the action, from my, from my behavior. And when I'm that blocked, when I'm that fixed in, in a solid view of myself, how can my heart respond to the things of this world. How can I? And I remember back when I was in my 20s, I was totally configured in a me. There wasn't anything of me available to reach out. Everything was about what's in it for me. And I got to the place where that me was so painful and so confused and so constricted that I actually nearly had a nervous breakdown. Really, really painful time. (coughs) And it's also what led me to Dharma practice. Because I was in so much pain and so much contraction that I needed help. And so the Dharma came into my life. And the Dharma started to bring some understanding of how to loosen that construction. To find that gap in that solid configuration so that I can start to experience something besides the pain and confusion in my life. So when we're in that place, how can our hearts respond? How can we even expect that from ourselves? Or from another? How can we expect it from another? It's just not possible. When I was in Canada a few weeks ago, this very interesting thing that happened where I, had, I was teaching with a, a friend who was managing and assisting the retreat. And after the Dharma talks in the evenings, we would go for a walk about 8.30 at night, still light. And we would always feel you know, very uplifted and joyful and very happy that you know, the Dharma is here and the Dharma is being expressed. And we were walking down the street 
um, small, little, tiny area, not many cars or many people, very open, you, know, you could see for miles. And we're walking down the streets of feeling so happy and uplifted and so happy to be together and all this joy and all this radiance is just pouring out. And then a car stops, a car stops, and a woman comes out and it's one of my Donna's friends. She comes out and it's somebody that Donna really wanted to see and it's just so odd that she just, the car stopped, she got out and then the car kept going, they just left her off. So she stopped for a few moments and she just wanted to connect with Donna and she said, Donna said, how are you? And she said, oh, you know, things are really difficult right now. My 21-year-old daughter is home and she's just come out of the hospital and, and she's in a very difficult state. She's uh, uh, self-harming. She's cutting herself. And it's very, very difficult. And I could just see the... It's like, wow, you know, one minute, just one minute, all this euphoria and all this joy and this happiness, and then the next minute... Not even a minute, just like, ah, the predicament that this woman was in, having her daughter be in that state. And she has to go home. She just walked five minutes, she had to be five, she five minutes away, and she had to walk home to see her daughter. And it's so interesting to see that shift because I could feel how, wait a minute, that's taking my joy away. I don't want to hear this. And I can just remember 30 years ago, and this all sort of flashed through my mind, just in that, that whoosh. And I remember 30 years ago where I, I would not wanted to hear what she had to say because I was sure she was taking my joy away. She was taking my happiness away. And when I have, when I'm happy, you know, I needed to hold on to it for dear life because I didn't know how long it was going to last. <laughs> And so he just would hold on, hold on. So if somebody like that came along, it's like, whoa, get away. But here it was, you know, just... I could see myself just dropping, no holding, and just, wow, I wanted to be right there for her and give her that support, listen to her, this pain, deep pain that she was expressing. And it all happened like in about three minutes. And then she was off. She was gone. And it was almost like my head was spinning from it. It was almost like she was a bodhisattva. This woman was a bodhisattva. Because she was reminding me in that moment there's nothing that you can hold on to. You can't hold on to this joy. It's there sometimes, but there's deep pain and suffering in this world. And even when we're feeling that joy, we can't forget. Like the arms and the eyes touching the world, we can't go to sleep. Can't go to sleep because we don't know in any moment when it's going to change, what's going to be needed, what, 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 what's going to be pulled out of our being, out of our heart. And can we respond? Can we be there? And sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't, and that's okay too. But can we turn the compassion back this way and say, right now I can't be there. 
I can't be there for the pain that's in front of me right now. I can't be there for this situation that I'm being confronted with right now. And sometimes we even need to say that, whether we're with somebody who we're close to or that we love, who is really needing something from us. They are in a lot of pain, but so am I. I'm in a lot of pain, and I can't be here for you right now. And so to be able to communicate that, to be able to say that, but to say, say it, saying it was from a very compassionate place, it's saying it from a place that understands what's possible, what our capacity is at any given time as human beings. And this is truly the expression of compassion. It doesn't have to look any particular way. It doesn't mean that my heart is open and I'm able to respond with wisdom and action and goodness and love and clarity in every moment. It just means that maybe there's a gap enough that the judge isn't turning in this way towards myself because I can't do that and saying, ah, right now I need some compassion. And as much as I'd love to be able to be there for you, I can't. And so that doesn't look any particular way. We get out of the ideas of right and wrong. And we see if we can even respond to that, that difficulty, that inner difficulty. So genuine compassion, true compassion, arises when the what's in it for me loosens up. When there's really, there's truly room to consider others. There's still, it's still compassion when we can turn it towards ourselves and we're not being able, when we, when we don't have room for others. It's still compassion. But genuine compassion, what's called true compassion, is when we can, when we do have room for others. Sokni Rinpoche says that, that that true compassion arises after the realization of emptiness. And emptiness means after the realization of the emptiness of self, that we see that we're not solid, fixed, isolated individual beings. That construction loosens up and we see, yeah, I'm, I'm more empty than I thought I was. I'm not so solid. I'm not so fixed. There's gaps. <laughs> And true compassion arises after that realization. And hearing that actually made me feel better because then I thought, okay, well, you know, no wonder I don't express that kind of compassion because, you know, there's still some of me here. It's not empty. That, 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 this, this vehicle is still filled with self and greed and hatred and delusion. So that's a whole nother level of compassion <laughs> that they're talking about. The compassion of the Buddha. The compassion of the Bodhisattva. 
but it's still compassion. One time I was Spirit Rock, I lived near Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, and Sharon Salzberg, one of the co-founders of IMS, Insight Meditation Society, was giving a talk. And so I went over, I wasn't on the retreat, but I went over to hear Sharon give her talk. And she told a story of something that just had happened that day. And it really struck me. And she, she, she and Joseph, she was teaching with Joseph Goldstein, and um, they're very good friends with Ram Das, the American guru teacher who has really changed America, uh, the uh, consciousness of many, many beings on this earth. And as you know, Ram Das, I don't know how many years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, had a stroke. And it left him paralyzed. And he wasn't able to speak. And Ram Das was... A, wonderful speaker and teacher, very articulate, very very creative and clever. And, and just like that, one day, just gone. Couldn't speak. Wasn't that old in his 60s. Paralyzed in a wheelchair. And he had visited them that day and he was able to move around. This is about um, a year ago. And he was able to move around a little bit more, but just to speak a little bit more. He's able to speak now, but to, it takes him a while to formulate his, his words. And they were visiting him in one of the uh, uh, buildings that's not far from the meditation hall, but it has some steps. And they were having a meeting, Joseph, Sharon, and Ramdas. And when they were leaving, the van, Ram Dass's van, which is all uh, geared up for uh, dis disability, has, has uh, el um, ele not elevators, but some kind of elevated kind of ramp, and uh, it's, it's very, very well set up for him. It was down, right down by the steps, and uh, Ram Dass was coming down the steps. He was able to get down on his own, and it... And uh, Sharon was watching Ram Dass in this process. He didn't want any help. And Sharon's looking at him. It just looked like he was really struggling. It was like, oh my gosh, he's in so much pain. And it was just he was just trying to get down the steps, you know, just one after the next, and you know, every using every muscle that was working in his body and grimacing and just getting down and then finally, you know, getting around, somebody helped him, and getting around to the van and then getting into the van. It's just a huge, huge struggle. And it just, it just tore her heart. She just couldn't, could hardly bear it. Hardly bear see Ram Dass like that, her really good friend who she knew for so long and knew him before. And so she's just looking at Ram Dass. She's, she's sitting in the van. She's looking at him and she's just... You know, just sort of torn apart. And Ramdas looks at her and says, It's not what you think. It's not what you think. And she just, it just like kind of startled her, and then she got it that it was a projection of her own mind. That Ramdas was actually fine. 
come to a place where he's just fine. That's just his condition. <laughs> and he's just finding a way to manage. But he's not really having a problem with it. <laughs> he, he just said, I'm, I'm okay. Don't worry. He could see, you know. And so his compassion, his compassion just poured out for Sharon because she was having such a hard time. And he could see that. And his heart opened to her. And she said it was such a great teaching. It was such a great teaching of her own holding, her own inability to just be there in a real genuine way for him. So beautiful and so honest that she could share that. Still compassion. Still compassion, you know, that that love and that care that pours out of us for situations that we see, but yet it's not the pure compassion. It's not genuine because there's me there. Like what what I want for Ramdas. What I think Ramdas needs. You know, and then the and then the constriction that comes in the heart because of that. So if we go to the root of compassion, and the root of compassion, there are three aspects that are there. One is joy. One is sadness, and one is a sense of responsibility. And these three circle around each other. And when we think of that, we think the mind goes, well, how can there be joy in compassion and sadness in compassion at the same time? How can those two work together? And then that sense of responsibility that comes through the contact, through the seeing of the situation. And yet when we feel into it, feel into that open heart that can be there, that can respond, the joy is the joy that arises through that openness, through the the dissolution of the I want, I need. I demand from this situation. It's the release of that that's joyful. It's not joy in the feeling of joy, the sort of euphoria of joy, the the excitement that we usually relate to joy. But it's it's just a a, a joy, a, a contentment, an ease that's there. And then the sadness, the sadness in seeing the pain, it's not that the sadness goes away. The sadness is there, yeah, it's sad. And from that sadness there's that that pull to want to relieve the suffering. That sense of responsibility to want to bring an end to that suffering so that suffering doesn't continue. So when our heart is open, we we feel that sense of responsibility. 
It's not that we become so disengaged and cut off and passive and so happy in ourselves, you know. We're just so happy now that we're free, <laughs> that the world sort of dissolves and it doesn't matter anymore. No, it's, it's the heart is, t- is touched through that contact. The heart is moved through that contact and that engagement. We, we want to respond. We want to help. We want to make a difference. We want to serve. It's so different. It's so different than how I always imagined it would be. So in the beginning, we practice compassion because there is so much of me there, so much of me that wants things to be a certain way or doesn't want things to be a certain way that doesn't, isn't able to open the heart. So we practice compassion. We practice acceptance. We practice allowing. We practice loving kindness. We, we support the arising of this expression of our true nature. And it's not that we get something that we didn't have before. It's not like we become something that we're not, we aren't already. But it's through these supports that we start to create that gap. The gap in our solid structures. The gap in our thinking the gap in our mind, and it's through that loosening of the structure, then that nature has the opportunity to express itself. The qualities then can come through, and they do. (laughs) The expression of the enlightened wisdom, the expression of the realized being. Walt Whitman said, I am larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. And that's so beautiful because he's, it's like there's really understanding there. I am larger and better than I thought. Right? It's just a thought that thinks I am small and bad. I did not think, my mind did not think, I held so much goodness. And so when that thought, I am small, I am limited, I am bad, I am incapable, we're we're working with that. We're working with that. And, and we, we give support to ourselves when that's present. We bring the love. We bring the kindness. We bring the acceptance. We, all that helps to shake that, to loosen that. And then we get to the place where we don't, do not have to rely on those supports anymore. The gap is so wide and it opens so big, we become bigger and larger than we thought that there's no need to carry the support. To, we don't even really need the practice at some point because it's 
happening by itself. The expression is happening by itself. The qualities are shining through by themselves. The sense of me doing is not so strong. And those qualities become our reality. Sokni Rinpoche said on the retreat, he said, when everything becomes your friend, then you know dharma. When everything becomes your friend, then you know dharma. And that's another way to express that understanding. When there's no more that division of I love this, I don't love that. I want this, I don't want that. Everything has become your friend. Which is another way of talking about metta, which is loving kindness. That deep friendship, that deep connection with all things. The arms a thousand arms that are reaching out with eyes touching the world every inch of the world not just that part of the world (laughs) or this part but the world and in that world is this me and you You know, it's not just the world out there, but it's also the world in here. The nature that flows through all things. So, our practices to give support, to awaken these innate qualities of our heart, of our being, so that we can realize who we are. Enlightenment, so that enlightenment, enlighten, we lighten. Light, there's so many metaphors in the enlightenment. We become lighter, there's light, there's radiance. Enlightenment, awakening, awaking, waking up liberation, freedom, freedom from the construction, from the contractions, the constrictions. Freedom. No more divisions and distinctions and this and that and I want this and not that. It's the freedom to be in connection with all things because all things are equal. I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer afraid of myself. I'm no longer afraid. I can open. Let's sit just for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.